In our last lesson in the book of Revelation, we saw a terrifying image of a dragon who was in great intent with destroying the Christ. He fails in that attempt and also attempts to kill the remnant of Israel and fails at that. And we are left in chapter 12 in verse 17 with the dragon furious and his intention now is to go and make war with the rest of the saints. Verse 9 told us that the dragon is referring to Satan, the devil, the deceiver, that ancient serpent. We know who that is. And so we have Satan and now he is going to persecute and try to destroy the people of God. As verse 17 says, those who keep the commandments of God, and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. Chapter 13 should not cause us to think that we are now starting uh, a new picture or a new direction. Uh, while the chapter break is useful because we're now going to talk about the beast, it does not start a whole new train of thought. This is the picture of how the dragon is going to try to kill the offspring of Jesus Christ. This is now showing how the dragon is going to try to bring about this persecution, to make war with the saints. And so as we read the, this chapter, that's what's going on. And, and you notice the end of chapter 12, and sometimes that's attached to the beginning of chapter 13, shows that connection that here is the dragon taking his stand on the sand of the sea. And so now we'll read the first ten verses of chapter 13. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like the bear's and its mouth was like the lion's mouth, and to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. On One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And so that's the picture of our first beast from Revelation. 
chapter 13. The imagery is certainly fascinating. Seven heads, ten horns, ten diadems. You will notice that is very similar to the, the imagery of the dragon, and we'll compare that in just a moment. But we already get an interesting feel as the dragon takes his stand on the sand of the sea, and out then coming out of the sea is this terrifying beast, and he looks very similar to the dragon in terms of heads and horns, showing that he comes from the dragon. The dragon is the one who is behind this horrible beast rising up. And as we've noted many times, we noticed it with the dragon, we've seen it in the previous chapters of Revelation, those heads and horns and diadems are all symbols of great strength, great authority. This beast that rises up is going to possess a great amount of authority, a great amount of strength. And what we see most of the the world understand this to be, those who are futurists, premillennialists, they will come to chapter 13 and say, well, what we are reading about here is an end times event. And that the descriptions that are given here in this chapter is describing that terrifying entity, the Antichrist. And so he is going to come on the scene. He is going to wield this great power. He's going to have this authority and strength. And he is going to make war against the Christians. And he's going to be very destructive and cause great problems. And so this is where that text resides in saying that this Antichrist is going to cause havoc throughout the world is from this chapter. Now we need to keep in mind the context because this connection to chapter 12 is very important. When we see that chapter 13 is not a whole new set of images, but rather a description of a timeline of things that have happened from chapter 12, we'll understand that this end time, 2,000, 3,000 years, or however long it takes for the Lord to return, cannot be in view. Consider what the timeline was. Here is Satan. He tries to devour Christ and tries to be victorious by killing Him. We read in chapter 12, Christ is victorious because He raises from the dead. He ascends to the Father. He sits down on the throne and rules. We see the dragon trying to destroy the remnant that brought about Christ. But that was unsuccessful. Christ still came even though the nation of Israel was horrible in its sins. Even though it was taken away into captivity, there was still a precious few who were the true people people of God who came back as His remnant and the Christ came. And so to then come to chapter 12 and verse 17 and read, now the dragon is going against the saints, the timeline is not, let's fast forward over 2,000 years and see what the dragon does next. We're in the first century still. We're still in the time of Christ. What is the dragon going to accomplish now? There is no pause button to the story. We see the dragon now doing the next thing. Here is his next attack. And he is going to go after the Christians. And so for us to identify this image is very important as to who is the beast. I'll also remind us just a couple of time markers that we saw at the very beginning. We cannot ignore what we were told at the start. The time is near. These things must shortly take place. The very end of the book, in chapter 22, we're going to see that same imagery. So once again, we cannot take the message in this book and start projecting it way out thousands of years. The writer was very clear. These things were happening quickly. These things were taking place right then and there to the audience that was receiving this letter. Okay, so who is the beast? Well, what we need to do is... 
put a marker in your Bible in Revelation 13, and we're going to spend some time in Daniel chapter 7. Because this image, this terrifying image of this beast comes from Daniel chapter 7. And so we'll notice some parallels in a minute, but I want you just to get a feel for the description that Daniel prophesies concerning this terrifying beast. In Daniel chapter 7, you have in verse 1, it's the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, and another vision then comes to Daniel, and here's what he sees in verse 2 of Daniel 7, I saw in my, night, in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings, and as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear, it was raised up on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of, the, of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Verse 7. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth that devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there was one that came up from among them, another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, this horn... In this horn were the eyes like the eyes of man, and the mouth speaking great things. Let's stop there just for a minute and notice in Daniel's vision you see there are four beasts. All of them are coming up out of the sea. And you will notice that those first three beasts are to the description of a lion, a bear, and a leopard. And those are the same images that are used in Revelation 13 to describe this terrifying beast that comes up. It's the same mixture of these animals being brought together. And we'll talk about the symbolism of why that would be the case in just a minute. But I want you to see that John is relating to Daniel 7. What Daniel was prophesying about, now John is coming along and giving further explanation about what this terrifying beast is. And we notice that it has ten horns, very much the same, comes out of the sea in the same uh, pathway, in the same place, just like the one in Revelation 13. Now, what we see with Daniel is really interesting because he's describing four terrifying beasts, but you'll notice that to Daniel the most important one that he wants information about is the fourth one. The fourth one is the one that really catches his attention. And you'll notice that in verse 19 of Daniel 7. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about the ten horns that were on its head and the other horn that came up and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and the mouth and spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. So here is Daniel saying, I saw these images, but the real big deal 
was this fourth terrifying beast that is doing some pretty gruesome things. That's what he wants to know about. And one of the things that is important that we are told about these beasts is back in verse 17, we are told that these four beasts represent four kings or four kingdoms that will arise out of the earth. That is a really important piece of the puzzle. Here is Daniel observing and being told, now you see these four terrifying beasts Each one of them is representing a kingdom. And the book of Daniel sets forward for us from the very beginning, the very first vision. You might remember that terrifying vision that Nebuchadnezzar has. He sees this monster statue and it is made of all different metals and only Daniel is able to interpret the vision. And remember how that vision went, the gold being the head. Daniel interprets that in chapter 2 and says, You, O Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. And is describing it is the Babylonian Empire. That gives us the key then for the rest of the kingdoms that are being spoken of by these four terrifying beasts. The first beast that we are reading about then represents that Babylonian Empire here in Daniel 7. The second beast that rises up is the Persian Empire, sometimes called the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes were the stronger part for a while, and then the Persians were the stronger part. And it's quite funny that Daniel 8 speaks of all of that, how the Medes would be a little stronger, and then the Persians would be a bit stronger. Chapter 8 of Daniel specifies all of that. The third terrifying beast historically would be the Grecian Empire to rise after the Persians, and then if you know your history after that, the fourth beast would be the Roman Empire. It's important to just stop right there a second and say, there's only four beasts. Often in Revelation 13 and here in Daniel 7 and also in Daniel 2, the attempt is to try to make this fourth beast or the fourth image of the statue broken into two parts. To one of it to be one piece to be the Roman Empire that ruled there in the first, second, third centuries. But then a future Antichrist type Roman Empire to come that will resemble a lot like the Roman Empire. But no, there's only four, not five. We have to be careful with our numbering here. This imagery of this fourth terrifying beast, the imagery of the legs in that statue being of iron and clay, all of those are picturing the Roman Empire. And I'll just give you in a ballpark, 44 BC is the Julius Caesar time. Don't argue with me that Augustus was 27. I know. Ballparking the frame of the Roman Empire that we are not talking about a future Roman Empire to come. This is talking about what was transpiring there in the first century. That world power. That's what's going on here and that's the description that's given to us. Now if you look in verse 21 of Daniel 7 and we're told a few more things then we'll make our connections to Daniel 13. Daniel 7 verse 21 As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High And the time came for the saints to possess his kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, and this is going to be the interpretation of what this fourth terrifying beast is. He says, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth. Let me stop there and just say, that's what we've done up there on the screen. That's our counting of four. Babylon, then Persia, then Greece. Here's the Roman Empire being predicted and what it's going to do. Verse 23, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and Break it in pieces. As for the ten horns, 
Out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. It shall be different from the former ones, and it shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey them. Okay, What you have there is very similar to the message of Daniel 2. This fourth terrifying beast, what's it going to do? It's going to persecute the saints. It's going to wear them out. It's going to make war with them. There's going to be persecution, but a picture of God's kingdom prevailing. Remember chapter 2, that's the real powerful part of that statue image. We often remember the first four medals, but after that we are told in the days of that statue, of the days of the iron and clay, there would be a stone that will come and shatter those legs and shatter that empire, shatter that kingdom, and it will be built up into a mountain of the Lord describing God establishing His kingdom. And that's what's being told there in verses 26 and 27 of Daniel 7. The same imagery is the kingdom of God is going to be victorious over these world kingdoms and world powers. So Daniel saw all of this, saw these terrifying images. Verse 28 is interesting. Daniel's alarmed. You can kind of tell he'd like a little bit more information about that, it says, but he kept these things to himself. This is a, uh, an amazing imagery that he sees in this vision. Let's head on back to Revelation 13 now, and I just want you to see the parallels to establish for you that we are talking about the very same beast, that this is talking about the fourth terrifying beast. As we already observed in Daniel 7 and verse 3 as well now in chapter 13 and verse 1 of Revelation, you'll notice that these beasts are both coming out of the sea. You'll notice they both have the same amount of horns. There's great power being described. Ten being a power number. And so this beast has great terrifying authority and power. Both of them speak blasphemous words and speak awful things against God, against His dwelling, against the Christians. We'll notice that in just a minute, but both of them have the same characteristic of blaspheming God and blaspheming His people. Both have the same duration of power. In Daniel, we were told the power would last for a time, times, and half a time. In Revelation, we're told the time would last for 42 months. If you're in the Wednesday class, you've gotten good practice at 1260 days, 42 months, three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time, all equaling a limited time of power that was going to cause persecution, distress, and tribulation upon the people of God. And so here is this image of this beast, and that's what it's going to do. And so the time frame is even the same. Both are allowed to make war against the saints, and they're allowed to prevail over them in Revelation 13.7, and well as Daniel 7.21. So all of the images are the same. So what John is showing us is that he is talking about this Roman Empire, not a future one in two 2,000 or 3,000 years, something like that, talking about from 44 B.C. to around 7 to 476 A.D., that Roman Empire that existed at that time. That's the beast. That's what fits Daniel 2. It fits Daniel 7. It fits Daniel 11 if we had time to run over there. But Daniel 11 also speaks of this terrifying image. And we will quote from there a little bit later in our lesson tonight. 
In Revelation 13, the same very beast now being seen again. Here's what it's going to do. So what we're going to do now is starting back in chapter 13 and verse 1 and now work our way through. Since this beast represents the Roman Empire, let's look at what are we being told that it's going to do. What are the Christians being told? What information are they getting about what Satan is trying to accomplish? We've already been told now that it is Satan, the dragon, who is behind the rising of this terrifying kingdom, this terrifying beast, the Roman Empire. That Satan is using the Roman Empire in great power and authority against the people of God. And so that's how chapters 12 and 13 are coming together. Satan is unsuccessful in destroying the Christ. Unsuccessful in destroying the remnant. He is going to use this Roman Empire to destroy and exterminate the people of God. And so here's the message that's given to us. Chapter 13, verse 1, again, with the ten heads and excuse me, ten horns and seven heads and ten diadems, we are seeing this power is great. This empire will exert massive power over the earth, over people, over all things. And notice verse 2 tells us it is Satan who grants it that power. That should not be too disturbing to us because we read in a number of places the power that Satan has being called the ruler of this world and being called the prince of the power of of the air and language like that, that Satan wields great power on this earth. And we are seeing that being allowed here, that Satan can use this Roman Empire to destroy the people of God. And so here is Satan bringing about this empire. And so verse 2 says, And to it the dragon gave his power, his throne, and great authority. This explains why the imagery in verses 1 and 2 are combined is what Daniel was telling us is that this fourth kingdom is going to be worse than the previous kingdoms. And I don't, I suppose potentially, arguably, we could say, well, the Roman Empire was more vast than the previous empires. Fairly true, but I don't know that that's exactly the point. The point is in its intent. The Roman Empire is going to make war with the Christians, with the people of God, unlike the previous empires, not to the level and degree and severity that this fourth beast is going to accomplish. And so I believe that's why the images are combined of lion, bear, and leopard to show these other three empires were powerful, lion, leopard, and and bear, This one, by combining it, says it's greater, more powerful, and more frightening and terrifying than the three previous. And notice that's how Daniel describes it. Every time he describes that fourth kingdom, he never starts pulling out animals. He just simply says, it's a terrifying, dreadful, awful beast. And be fearful of this terrifying image because of what it's going to do. Daniel 2 verse 40 told us the same thing about this Roman Empire when it said, And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And then you have the imagery of the people of God are the ones that are being crushed. And that's what Daniel 7 was talking about. Now, We have the worship of the beast taking place in verses 3 and 4. A fairly challenging image that's given to us here. It's 
quite paradoxical. Verse 3, one of the heads has a mortal wound or fatal wound or lethal wound, depending upon your translation, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. This is a really strange image because you say, here is this great beast and it takes on a fatal wound to the head. But then it heals and it's not dead. Well, it's not a fatal wound if it still lives, right? That's what's kind of curious about what's being said about this beast. Here's the fatal wound. It appears it's going to die, but then it doesn't at all. In fact, it lives yet again. Verse 14, we'll look at uh, Lord willing next week, but we're given a little bit more detail there that it's wounded by the sword and yet lived. And so the big question that surrounds that is, well, what is this talking about? Here we have this fourth terrifying beast. It's speaking about the Roman Empire. And it has these seven heads. And one of the heads takes on this fatal wound, and yet the fatal wound is healed. And so there's a great debate of, is this talking about a particular emperor? Is it talking about a particular event? Is it talking about just something kind of generic about the kingdom, the, the empire at that time? Very difficult to know. I, I kind of throw all of this together and you know take it as you will, but here's what I think it is talking about, is I think it is speaking of some kind of event that it appeared the Roman Empire would fall, that it would appear that it would become so unstable, and thus that would lead to the worship that's described in verse, verse 3 and verse 4. However this wound took place and then it's healed, notice in verse 3, the whole earth marveled at this event, and then verse 4, they worshipped the dragon for giving it authority, and notice what it means about the beast at the end of verse 4, the people are worshipping the beast saying, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? What they take away from this is that this empire can't be destroyed. That it's not going to ever disappear. That seems to be the motivation as to why the people are worshiping the beast. You go do your own Revelation homework because I don't have time to give you the 5,000 interpretations that exist on what this could possibly mean. I'll just give you the what I see this be talking about. For me, this makes the most sense to be talking about what is historically called the year of the four emperors in 69 AD. Once Nero dies, is that the head mortally wounded? Possible. Can't be dogmatic. Very possible. Once Nero dies, though, you have complete unrest and civil war take place within the empire. You have at that time two emperors murdered, one committing suicide, and the fourth one in that same year, Vespasian, comes and finally establishes the throne. I found this map, and I don't know how it will show. That's not too bad. I know it's kind of faded, but... The idea of the map is to show that those are the different Roman legion divisions and the different emperors they were dedicated to. And historically, once Nero dies, they all claimed allegiance to a different emperor. One claimed it to Galba, one to Otho, one to Vitalius, and one to Vespasian. And so they all basically divided and battle ensued and civil war took place. And I think that is likely what is in reference here is that with all of that instability, with all of that war going on, in fact it was so um, tumultuous that it causes Vespasian to stop his battle and assault and siege on Jerusalem to go back to Rome and to go put down the emperor who said he was an emperor there and establish himself as emperor at that time. 
And it might very well be then the imagery that's being given to us in verses 3 and 4 is that there is an event here that is causing such instability within this beast, this Roman Empire, that it seems that the world thinks it's going to lose its power and might, but actually it doesn't. It only gets stronger. It only becomes more powerful. It heals. It lives. And the people begin to worship it. Now there's a couple other events, like in the 200s later on, you have 30 emperors in about 32 years approximately, something like that. You have a whole other outbreak and that kind of thing happening. Maybe it's looking out there, not real sure. But for the time frame of what we are keeping Revelation to, the year of 69 uh, seems to work very well to this picture to say, when Nero dies, that is when things really fall apart and history records for us the massive unrest, the massive civil war, and then finally, at the end of the year 69, Things settle in, Vespasian becomes emperor, and then it goes back to status quo. Things go on their merry way. Vespasian sends his son Titus back to Jerusalem, finishes the job in 70 AD in destroying Jerusalem, and things then reestablish as Vespasian rules for another approximately 11 years or so. Um, so that's, I think, the picture of verses, verses 3 and 4 is describing this great event that would cause instability to the Roman Empire, but yet the people then see, look how great and how powerful it is. And that's what now is projected for us in verses 5 through 8 is, look at the authority of the beast. Look at the authority of the empire. The beast, verse 5, was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words, and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell on excuse me, those who dwell in heaven. So you have a picture after this event, that's when things get really bad. And it seems to be indicating here's what the emperors are going to do. Things are going to get very terrible. They're going to blaspheme God. They're going to blaspheme God's dwelling. They're going to blaspheme the Christians. And I, I, I like um, a couple of translations rightly, I think, literally translate uh, Verse 6, when it says there, blasphemies, blasphemes against God, against His name, and against His tabernacle, that is, those who tabernacle in heaven. Talking about the Christians, they are blaspheming against God, against His authority and His rule, and also against the Christians. The point being, the Roman Empire has no regard for God, has no regard for God's authority, has no respect for God's power, and has no concern for Christians whatsoever. It is laying the groundwork of the severe persecutions that are about to come. And that's what we're going to read about uh, in this next verse. Um, G.K. Beale in his New International Greek Testament commentary said, The blaspheming, uh, quote, implies a speaking out against God through self-deification. Uh, and that seems to be the right picture of what's going on with this blasphemy. It's not just simply speaking against God, but claiming He is God. And by doing so, then He stands against God and is standing against the Christians and all that God stands for. And that is certainly a characteristic we see of the Roman emperors as time continued on uh, as the, the years passed by. Also notice verse 6. 
It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name, His dwelling, that is those who dwell in heaven. Also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. That is an important picture as well in talking about the authority the beast has. He's going to not only slander the people of God and blaspheme God and blaspheme the Christians and blaspheme God's dwelling, but you see he's going to make war against the people of God. He's going to cause severe unrest. And verse 7 shows the authority is given notice over every tribe, people, language, and nation. I think that's really important and identifies that we are on the right track with the Roman Empire. They are the world power at that time. And they are wielding their authority against all who dwell then underneath them. Uh, Daniel spoke of all of this. Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, where there we read in speaking about the Roman Empire and the emperors. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god for he shall magnify himself above all. Now shockingly, let me give you a tidbit on the side from Daniel 11. Many of the writers think this future Antichrist, which is not what Revelation 13 is talking about, is going to be a homosexual because it talks about not loving women or being beloved by them. You've got to be kidding me. But this is what is done with this text. It's not talking about that. It's talking about these emperors are not going to care about anybody. They're not going to care about the gods that their parents worship. They're not going to care about women, children, anybody. They're not going to care about God. They are setting themselves up as God. They will be worshipped as God. They want those accolades to themselves regardless of what happens. And if you've read any history about the... The emperors, you know they killed their own families. You know they killed their own children and wives because they wanted to establish their throne. It was a horrible time in terms of those emperors and in terms of their immorality. I believe this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was describing in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. A lot of people have questions about, well, who is the man of lawlessness? Now, most of the writers say, well, that's that future Antichrist. No, it's that same entity. It's that you know, those emperors of the Roman Empire. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, For that day will not come, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Same kind of imagery, same entity. This is the Roman Empire and its great might and great power, blaspheming against God, claiming to be God itself and demanding the earth to worship it. And so then we add in verse 7 with the authority to make war on the saints. That's what Daniel 7 told us. What we read earlier, this horn makes war with the saints and prevailed over them until the ancient of days came. And judgment was given to the saints of the Most High in the time when the saints possessed the kingdom. You have the horn making war with the saints and prevailing over them. And then Daniel 7 verse 25 says, He shall speak words against the Most High and wear out the saints of the Most High. And then you notice his arrogance to think to change the times and the law and even uh, the seasons, things like that. Again, showing the great arrogance, showing how this empire and these emperors will stand against God.
This leads to verse, verse, uh, end of verse 7 and, and then also verse 8. Authority over the whole earth verifies that we're talking about the Roman Empire. And verse 8 then says, And all who dwell on the earth are going to worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before from the foundation of the world in the book of life until the Lamb who was slain. So picturing the vast power and might. Um, it is under Trajan, historically we're told from 98 to 117, that that was the furthest points of the empire. Uh, that was when it had its furthest reaches. Everything after that was a defense and trying to maintain those boundaries. Like Hadrian went later after Trajan builds his wall to try to keep uh, whatever they were over there in Britain coming in <laughs> and trying to take, take, it, take the, the Roman Empire's land. So that's the idea is saying look at the great power, look at the great might. The Roman Empire was that sole world power, especially in the first and second centuries. Now, when we get to the third century, you're going to see the destabilization of the empire. We'll see it divide in two, and you'll have a, uh, an east and a west, and two capitals and things like that. But I think this is really zeroing in on the great power that would be wielded in those first couple of centuries. And so then the world worships it as God and pays homage to it and says, They are the ways to worship God. In fact, saying that that Rome and its emperors had come down from the gods. And everybody on earth does that. Notice, except in verse 8, those whose names are written in the book of life. Everybody but the Christians are participating in this. Uh, And can you imagine? You think peer pressure is bad now. Imagine everybody thinks we need to worship the emperors because they're given to us from the gods. And they go and they make their offerings and offer their sacrifices and they pay their homage and declare him to be the son of God or to be high priest. All of those inscriptions being even on the coins that were uh, printed for them. And the Christians are the only ones who will not bend the knee to that and will not pay the sacrifices or give the homage or say that he's from the gods. That's what's being described here in verse 8, is that the Christians are going to be different. That leads to verses 9 and 10, the prophetic warning given to us. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. You know Jesus would do that? Pay close attention to what I'm about to say. That's what Jesus was doing. You have an ear, hear what I just told you. Here is John now in this message saying, pay attention to this important message. Verse 10. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain by the sword, with the sword he must be slain. That's a very depressing image right there. He says, listen very carefully. You're going to be killed. Listen very carefully. You're going to be arrested and taken to captivity. You are not going to be free during these times. You are going to experience tremendous suffering. You're going to experience tremendous persecution. This war that is being pictured against the saints of God is going to be absolutely horrible. And what is possibly surprising is the last words of verse 10. Because he makes no allowance to say, I know it's going to be really bad, so... Do what you need to do to get by. I know that you're going to be called upon to offer your incense, to offer worship to the emperor. I know that it's going to be very difficult. In next week's lesson, we're going to see that without this worship, they would not be allowed to buy or sell, to participate in economics in the marketplace. So I understand the problems. Go ahead and yield a little bit so that's not too tough. 
The words of verse 10. The point. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. This is what we are calling for. The reason God is telling those first century Christians about this horrible imagery about what's going to take place, about how the empire is going to persecute and kill you, how you're going to be called upon to worship the beast while the rest of the world does it, is so that you will have the faithful endurance to resist, to not participate in any bit of that in the slightest. His prophetic warning to them, here is what is going to happen to you. Brace yourself. Be aware, be warned, because the impact of this persecution is going to be severe. That is the the point of why he describes all of that. It's not to get all excited and make some strange imagery, but to say, remember what Daniel talked about with that fourth terrifying beast? It's here. It's arrived. It now exists. And the Christians at that time had to be vigilant and be ready to die, even under those circumstances. That leaves me, and I want to leave you with three lessons, three things that just I felt just felt were just amazing lessons that we get from uh, this horrible imagery about what would happen to those Christians who lived at that time. Uh, number one is a reminder to us that our hope and our trust and all that we stand for is not tied to this government or to its leaders, to this country. Uh, absolutely not. And here is a picture of that. Here were people who are being told, you're not going to participate in what the rest of the world's participating in as they pay their homage and give their allegiance to this empire and, and, off, and worship it and, and call it God and all of that. He says, you're not going to be amongst that crew. You're not going to do that because that's not where your citizenship is. That's not what you're going to participate in. And it is easy as Christians to get way too caught up in the affairs of this country as if this is all there is. As if God can't just flick it off the earth and say, let's start with something else. Uh, No matter where we live, no matter what country we're under, no matter what is in power, no matter if we like the people in charge or don't like the people in charge, if we like that we are capitalists or don't like being capitalists, whether we like democracy or don't, it doesn't matter what we are under, we serve the Lord. And our allegiance is not to this country first and foremost. Our allegiance is to Jesus Christ no matter what. Do not get lost in the affairs of politics and the things of this world. They do not matter in terms of the greater scheme of why we are here. We are here to serve Jesus and to teach the world about Jesus, not to promote a party, not to promote a particular way of life. Jesus is what we are here for, and that's who we must serve, and that's who we show our allegiance to, regardless of who is in charge, regardless of where we live. Number two, the call to endure. Those words, I hope you see, those words in verse 10, they hurt me. He just told them, you're going to die, so endure. Whoa. And it just shocks me that what we are being taught here is even in the most extreme of circumstances, where our own country could turn against us 
and say, we are the ones that must either serve the country or die, to give our homage to the country or die, Christ says, be faithful and die. Even in the most extreme of circumstances that we can hardly even imagine or visualize could ever happen. They lived it. And Christ says, be faithful no matter what. There is no excuse, there is no occasion, there is no circumstance that God allows us to relinquish our faith or to take a step back in saying who we are or who we believe in or where our allegiance lies. There's no place that we can say, well, here's an example of where it was okay to kind of sidestep the issue a little bit. We are Christians to the death. We remain faithful to death. We will endure anything for the cause of Christ. We do not care what the world may do to us. And they're being told, that's what you do. And that's exactly what did happen to them. Which means, number three, that we have to stand against the world. To be willing to stand against the world. To be the holy people of God and show Christ in our lives, even when it's unpopular, even when it's not politically correct, even when everybody tells us we need to keep our faith to ourselves, that Jesus is is horrible. In fact, um, I remember a few lessons ago, I did a thing talking about the bumper sticker Coexist. I just saw one on the way here. And remember that Coexist thing, it's like all the massive religions and the T is the cross. It didn't even have Christianity in the Coexist at all. It was everything else but Christianity. We are living in a world that is right now becoming so anti-Christ <laughs> that we have to understand that we will mu- and must stand against the world. And we're not going to be quiet because people don't like it. And we're not going to hide our faith because people think we're being intolerant or think we shouldn't be speaking about these things. We will be holy in our conduct and we will stand against the world and we will teach Jesus regardless of the consequences, even in the most extreme circumstances. I think Revelation 13 teaches us some valuable lessons about where our heart must lie and the preparations and priority that Christ demands of us to be true followers of Him. Pull your songbooks out. We'll sing the invitation song.